You're listening to ZZ Talk, a father-son generational podcast where we talk about entertainment, culture, and a variety of other subjects from the perspectives of both Gen Z and Gen X. I'm Noah. I'm Greg. And this is ZZ Talk. Hello, hello, and welcome to the show. So today, of course, we want to talk about films, but this is going to be a fun little twist, and I think this is really going to play into the whole generational aspect of our podcast. So we got to thinking, they don't really make them like they used to anymore, and we're talking, of course, about movies. So my dad, of course, grew up with Jaws and Alien and Star Wars, and I grew up on Harry Instead Potter and Gone with the Wind and <laughs> Sound of Music, uh, Wizard <laughs> of Oz, you know, Technicolor, right? Um, anyway, so uh, yeah, I, of course, you know, we've seen and experienced different movies in our respective generations. And I think a lot of people can probably agree or would possibly think they really don't make movies like they used to anymore. Now, I both want to support and challenge that assertion to an extent. But I think that there's a really healthy dialogue that we can have that will sort of be able to show both sides of the argument, because I kind of feel strongly in both ways. So do you have anything to add on to that before I sort of get into my starting concept about framing this whole movie business? Well, I wanted to start this episode by saying back in my day, (laughs) but because, you know, the whole concept is they don't make them like they used to. And honestly, when we first started talking about this, as a conversation for our episode, I thought we were going to talk about more than films, but uh, I like the avenue you're going down with this. So um, yeah, there'll be, there should be a lot of interesting things to point out along the way. So yeah, definitely. So I want to start out with sort of this concept that most of our listeners might not actually know about. And I had sort of heard whisperings of because, you know, I love reading forums. I love reading public opinion and just sort of getting to understand like what the movie business is and why and how they're made. So, of course, I think you could say that uh, Jaws was the first blockbuster, right? 1975. Fair. And then yes. onward, you know, we had Star Wars, which was a huge success. And we had multiple other films that eventually became franchises, right? So I think part of the reason why we sort of view movies as not as good today is because of that exact reason. We're living today. When you've been 30 years removed from a movie, you only Mm -hmm. remember what? The best and the worst. You don't remember the also. Yeah. We also idealize the past. So of course, whatever was um, whatever we're thinking fondly about now, perhaps wasn't quite as well received in the moment. And there are <laughs> yeah. scores of films that are have reached uh, cult status or iconic or classic status today that at the time, no one cared about. Yeah, I'd like to give an example. Um, so there's a movie called The Room, which many people might be familiar with. Um, so the director, writer, and lead actor is Tommy Wiseau. And at the time, it was widely considered to be one of the worst films of all time. Critically panned, incredibly low production value, incredibly hammy acting, just really not a good film at all. But then, literally like 15 years later, I think it came out in 2003, it became this pop culture sensation, sort of this idealized midnight movie, cult classic sort of film because of just how bad it was. Now, I think most people can agree the quality itself isn't 
good per se compared to the movies that we see, but it's very, very entertaining in its own right. And you know what? It took almost two decades for people to realize the value that they get from that movie. And that's sort of where I'm heading with this because obviously, like I said before, in the 19, uh, think about the 1930s through the 1960s. Of course, movies weren't as big business as they are these days, but you can only really name the hits, right? You can't even really name a bunch of the flops. You know, you might think about Ben-Hur. You might think about... um, Singing in the Rain. Singing in the Rain. You know, those massively popular and successful movies that sort of spurned it over to um, what Jaws would eventually become. And, you know, some of these popular franchises, directors, all that kind of stuff. But I want to talk about this concept that some people might not have heard about called Hollywood accounting. So that's in quotations. So I read a tweet um, a few months ago that said, uh, Bohemian Rhapsody uh, actually did not make a profit in Hollywood, despite how much did it make? I think well over a billion dollars. And it cost, I think, maybe a 10th of that to make. I think it cost 50 to 80 mil to make. And so I wanted to explain the concept of Hollywood accounting because there's actually a lot of massive franchises that have technically been written off as a net loss from the movie studios. So it's a bit of a loophole here, but um, Hollywood accounting essentially artificially inflates movie budgets, right? So a movie like Jack and Jill, per se, might have cost, what do you think to make? Pretty cheap, right? 10 million. 10 million? No, let's say 25 because Adam Sandler had to get his 10 million in just for being in it. But I think Adam Sandler was the, it's from his production house, right? I think Mm -hmm. it's from Happy Madison or whatnot. So the production house artificially starts inflating costs. You put, um, so say that the production house is just like, okay, so we catered X, uh, X uh, organization catered this movie, charged an exorbitant amount of money, charged an exorbitant amount of money for marketing, advertising, all that kind of stuff. So the movie's budget goes from 15 to 20 million to like 80 million. And I think that's how much Jack and Jill costs somewhere in the ballpark of almost $100 million. So essentially, Hollywood is saying we have so much overhead. And that's how it kind of like screws over the actors, because a lot of times actors make the net profits rather than the gross profits. But a interesting uh, sort of diversion from that example is Keanu Reeves getting a cut of the film ticket sales from the matrix franchise. And I think he made like 30 to 60 million just from the matrix alone, which was a pretty good deal because I'm at the time, I'm sure they didn't know how it would be, but um, this is a really cool thing about Hollywood accounting uh, because I mean, you might be thinking in your head, that's kind of like fraud. That's like fraudulent. Right. So um, there was a Reddit post that said um, Hollywood accounting is a creative accounting process used to hide film profits. Some of the highest grossing films of all time have actually registered as a net loss and no profit on paper using this process, including Return of the Jedi, Forrest Gump, The Lord of the Rings trilogy, and Harry Potter. And so the top comment under this said, my favorite example of this is Winston Groom, author of the novel Forrest Gump. So you remember how popular Forrest Gump was when it came out, right? I think that was around the year I was born. So it's considered a classic movie by every stretch of the imagination. Uh, Robert Zemeckis, the guy who directed Back to the Future and a number of other very popular films uh, directed it. I think I'm correct in saying that. Um, So this comment says, the movie comes out, 
It's one of the biggest hits of 1994. Groom, the author, doesn't see a dime because Hollywood accounting says it was a flop. Groom writes that the, he writes a sequel novel, Gump and Company, essentially so he can at least make a little bit off of the film's success. Hollywood comes sniffing around, wanting to adapt Gump and Company, and then Groom, the author, with his voice, no doubt dripping in sarcasm, goes, I don't understand. Why do you want me to make a sequel to such a huge flop and refuses to sell the movie rights to the sequel? So Hollywood, of course, makes these massively budgeted films, and for the most part, you could probably account for big-name actors, a lot of CGI. It's very expensive. Maybe, you know, product placement and filming locations, it can add up to a very grand total. But some of these movies, which you might think were massive flops, might have actually been artificially inflated and made more gross profit than you think, and might have actually made better returns than you think. And I've also heard a theory that sometimes, uh, what's an example of a movie that had a massive budget that you couldn't believe had a massive budget? That I couldn't believe had a massive budget. Um, yeah, didn't some well, you know, some of the most notorious uh, failures at the box office. I don't know by your methodology here, but by Hollywood accounting or box office accounting. But you know, films like Ishtar, um, films like Waterworld. Uh, Waterworld's a good example. Was that Kevin Costner? Costner, yes. Wow. Okay, yeah. Um, I actually do know the film Waterworld, and. I actually think that might have been a somewhat genuine attempt at like a bigger budget film. But uh, think about The Great Wall with Matt Damon. Um, mm-hmm. Do you remember the controversy of that around 2016, 17, something like that? Because it cost this $150 million budget. Exactly. So some people think that movie studios make, and this might actually be true, insanely inflated budgeted movies to intentionally write as a net loss so that they can, you know, sort of actually create more funds for their next big budget film. So it's actually a very big strategy. It might not be because, you know, to the public, it's just like, why would you make a movie like that? It's doomed to fail. But there might be a lot more tact involved in the actual making of some of these massively budgeted movies than you might think. So so, uh, so you lost me and you may have lost some of our listeners. So I want you to re-explain this to me. So in the case of The Great Wall with $150 million budget, now Mm -hmm. I'm here to tell you, I could have told you that film was not going to make any money. Mm -hmm. Not in the United States anyway. So give me the short version again. So essentially, um, there's this idea that uh, movies are made with these massively inflated budgets and there's no hype around it, right? They don't do the marketing necessarily for it. Uh, right. It's not hotly anticipated. You know, they make these crazy expensive movies and you think, oh, this is doomed to fail. Like, mm-hmm. did Hollywood really think this was a good idea? But because mm-hmm. of Hollywood accounting, they actually make more than you think. And uh, by the end of the, by their net profit is, like way higher than you think. And it might actually go to fund other ventures. And, you know, it's, I I think they can get tax write-offs for it too, depending on uh, a multitude of factors. So I know that's a really confusing sort of idea, but of course we're not accountants. We're not sort of in the finance side of this thing, but that's how movies, even with massive budgets, I mean, think about even the biggest movie studios. Like there's been so many flops from, 
you know, Universal, even 20th Century Fox, like multiple massive movie studios, but yet they don't go under and they still release a ton of high budget films, you know? Well, I mean, I, in the case of Sony, I would, I would say to you that Sony's properties have really cooled in the last few years until, you know, now they have a massive hit with the tie-in with Marvel. I'm not exactly sure I understand the full relationship between Sony and Marvel with Spider-Man, mm-hmm. but you know, Sony's a great example of a studio that is well-known, highly regarded, but really has missed a lot more than it has hit in the last decade. Um, and I know someone who works for Sony, so I, you know, um, I have that knowledge based on, you know, having conversations. Yeah, certainly. And I think Sony is notable, obviously, for bringing us the Spider-Man trilogy, the original one, which were all ginormous hits and i think (laughs) spider-man 3 was the most expensive movie ever made at the time i think the budget was about 300 to 350 million and that's what toby mcguire one uh yes the third one uh, where it had venom and it had sandman and um probably one other villain new goblin 250 million dollars oh was that it okay Mm -hmm. then yeah okay so that was one of the most expensive not the most expensive movies ever made at the time but um yeah it's and i think they also i think they also have the venom franchise now which made an untold amount of money i think the first one made like 800 million dollars or something mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. crazy um and also remember sony is not an american company so they do have uh, a lot of international box office appeal i would say yeah 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 the most expensive film ever made do you know what it is noah oh man so it's not titanic it's not is it Avengers and fin- no uh, Endgame? No, you will be surprised. Pirates of the Caribbean on Stranger Tides. Oh, you know what? That's right. That's right. Three hundred and seventy-eight and a half million dollars to make. To make. Did you say eight hundred million? Three hundred and seventy-eight. Oh, okay. Yeah. yeah. And you know what? A lot of people didn't like that movie, but I thought it was really, really good in twenty. Which one was that? The first or the second one? So you or didn't see that one. It was the fourth. It was the one oh. with just Jack Sparrow. And mm-hmm. I remember you opted out of it because you didn't like the third one. Um, right, I didn't understand it. Yeah. Yeah. But it, I mean, you know, that's from Disney. Of course, they can make something with that massive of a budget. And I do think that was an earnest attempt at making a high budget film because, um, I mean, the Pirates of the Caribbean franchise was massively successful at the time. I think the third mm-hmm. one made nearly a billion, if not a billion dollars. So, I mean, you know, uh, sometimes they make large budgets for films that are pretty good bets for the most part. But yeah, so we're talking about they don't make them like they used to. And I want to just sort of dive into what have you noticed in terms of quality drop or quality gain over the years with the movies that you've seen? Do you genuinely yeah. think that movies from yesteryear are better than 2000 and on per se? In some ways, yes. In some ways, no. For example, I mean, obviously the, 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 the first thing I think of is, you know, if, it, if it's, a, it's a film that has special effects and, and let's be honest, most films today have special effects. I mean, I'm not necessarily always talking about blockbusters, but, you know, obviously any story is by and large going to have uh, sets and, you know, that are augmented by CGI. So um, I think first and foremost, the production of a film can look more authentic or, or more real because of um, the, where we are in terms of technology, right? Mm-hmm. 
Um, so that's one. I think the second thing that's very apparent whenever I watch an older film is acting has come a long way. Oh, yeah. Um, if you watch some of the, the finest performances, for example, one of my favorite movies of all time is The African Queen. And it stars two Academy Award winners, Catherine Hepburn um, and Humphrey Bogart. But it's, I mean, compared to it, and that's honestly a film that I think they should almost remake. Um, now, it's, it's a classic and it, a film remaking that film is a terrible idea in spite of what I just said, because it could never be as good as the first one. But the acting today is so much more, I'll just call it sophisticated. Um, and I think a lot of that has to do with the ability to produce a film in a higher quality way than you could back in the forties or the fifties. Yes, absolutely. And so you might notice, uh, you know, sometimes people make fun. They say, why do, why did people talk different in the fifties or why did actors talk different in the fifties? I think because in that point in time, theater and films were more akin to stage plays. Like I would say that um, movies were definitely a different format that would allowed you to be more immersed. But of course, the first form of theater came from stage plays, right? Mm -hmm. It came from mm -hmm. people being able to exaggerate their movements so that you could get the most out of it. It elicited emotion, right? And I think nowadays you can frame a lot of emotion. I mean, take Yellowstone or really any other drama, for example, without even saying a word, right? You know, I feel like there's, yeah. I feel like there's a lot of long stares and long shots and swelling music, you know, sort of in these dramas that couldn't really have been made back then. And then we sort of seen a shift and then in production of how you can make movies uh, in you know today's times, but um, that's also you know that's also something I uh, do want to discuss. I think that in the 1970s, when movies started to become really big business, the first blockbuster, there were no franchises back then. There were no IPs, you know, intellectual properties. Um, I there, say this: there weren't there weren't uh, franchises, but there were. Uh... I think that was probably the period of time in the 70s where films um, started to spawn uh, a larger number of sequels than one. For example, the airplane, airport films. So there was airport, and then it was airport 77, and then airport 79. And these were mm -hmm. disaster films that were, you know, um, uh, produced because of the popularity of the preceding one. So I wouldn't call it a trilogy but I would call it the beginning of what we now know as a trilogy or a series like, you know, Harry Potter or something like that. Now, those are all based on books, of course, but you get the idea. In the 70s, the disaster film really caught on. You had the Towering Inferno, you had Earthquake, you had the air, airport films, and that was the beginning of, I think, the modern day um, film series. Yeah, of course. And, you know, I'm not going to lie and say that, okay, like a lot of like big Hollywood ideas and films were based off of books or stage plays, or, you know, I, I think Jaws was a, a book before it, it was. was a film. Yeah. Eventually, yeah. yeah. So, you know, I'm not just going to say everything was original idea, but I think people were more incentivized to create original ideas that resonated with the public that could eventually go on to make intellectual properties, franchises, trilogies, right? Because before long, uh, I believe Return of the Jedi was 1980. 
That was the third. No, 1983. 83. Uh Indiana Jones was 83? Indiana Jones may have been 81. Okay, and then I know that The Last Crusade was 89, I believe. Mm, That's Um, true, yeah. Yeah. So you started seeing it within the next decade. But of course, you know, we had so many sort of like films that were original. I mean, think about Alien. That is intensely original. And it spawned four or five sequels and a couple spinoffs as well. Multiple video games, multiple comics, all of that kind of stuff. And then Jaws has had, what, three or four movies. And we don't talk about Jaws three or four. Um, But you know, nowadays, it's like everything has to be more of a safe bet. Back then, of course, there were expensive films, but you could get away with pitching a very creative and original idea to somebody for the account of how it might be in the future, how it might resonate with audiences. And now I also think, well, we had all those amazing concepts back in the 70s, 80s, even 90s, Now, of course, they have a bunch of rehashes, a bunch of remakes, reboots. That's fair. But I also do think if you've been a movie fan for 30, 40, even 20 years, there's only so much new that can surprise you, right? I mean, there's always been horror films. There's always been these action films or these creature features, right? And you've the more you see over time, the less you can be really surprised or appreciate them as you watch them today. So I think... Of course, I love I love space movies. I love cosmic horror, but I've been a huge fan of Star Wars for 20 years or so now. And I think that I notice tropes and I notice generalizations and sort of things that happen within that genre, genre trappings, you could say, um, more frequently now because I've seen so many movies within that niche, right? You know, or action films. There's very film. little that's new under the sun. Of course, I think the point that you're making and and you're absolutely right. If you think about the film, film series that or the big films of the the last um, year and the next several months, you think about Dune remake uh, based on a book. You think about Matrix, um, the fourth one, uh, Halloween, the 20th one. Um, You have Top Gun 2 finally coming out at some point. You have James Bond. So really, there's very nothing new under the sun. But I'll tell you this, I would rather have uh, a new property and a sequel. Yeah, I'm going to say this. I can't believe I'm going to say this. I would rather watch a sequel than a remake. Because even though I know that sequel is not going to be good, I can guarantee you that remake is not going to be as good. Name one film. Maybe you can. But I don't know right offhand one film where the remake was better than the original. Um, okay, so 21 Jump Street was a TV series, right? Yes. Okay. Those movies are excellent comedy. Those are, re- I think they translated really well into movies. And they weren't, they, and the show was not, not a comedy. Was it not? Okay, yeah. Um, so maybe that's sort of cheating a little bit, but I honestly think that that brought, I think that brought 21 Jump Street, the franchise, to a new generation and also made it funny in a way where you probably wouldn't think it would work. I think that surpassed expectations. But, you know, I also want to say that nowadays, the way we watch movies is so much more accessible than it used to be. Isn't it great? I love it. I think it's great, too, because back then you only had the theater and pretty much the previews and I guess, you know, billboards and um, occasionally advertising on TV. Right. It was really just 
above the line media where it was cast into a wide net. So of course, you know, you couldn't really make indie films as much that would blow up in terms of box office returns. So nowadays we have Netflix, we have Hulu, we have Disney Plus, we have HBO Max, there's Paramount stars, Plus, Paramount Plus. Yeah, there's Love so it. there's so so much. It's like cable all over again, you know? It's um, fantastic. <laughs> yeah, but we have so much greater access to movies and I think nowadays it's just you can watch so many movies whenever you want it's a little bit less special than going to the theater every once in a blue moon and seeing a movie like you know seeing maybe two or three movies a year I think that's why IMAX and theaters like um uh the the one uh, near you or the Alamo draft house places mm-hmm. like that. That's not the only Alamo draft house I recognize, but I think that's why those have become so popular is because it makes what it has become more ordinary special again. Absolutely. And there's certainly people in the camp of I'd rather sit on the couch and watch my movies at home. And I think yeah. you're sort of in that way, but also I think people do like variety. IMAX still exists because it is an experience unlike any other unless you live in a giant mansion and you somehow are able to acquire an over 100 inch, uh, you know, theater screen. I mean, you know, you're not going to be able to replicate that. I will tell you that Luke, Luke went to the 4d theater experience the other night. Oh, I got that as a Christmas present from grace. Oh, uh, he, that's what he saw in it. And, And he said, I would hate it. Because he said it was like a Disney ride and it would probably make me sick. Well, you, you remember said a Bugs Life? You remember a Bugs Life, the 4D oh, version? I love that. That's what I envisioned. But he said this was more like, uh, what's the Star Wars? No, the Star Wars film. The Star Wars ride at um, at Disney. Star um, Tours? It's Star Tours. Yeah. It, yeah, Star Tours. And he said I would hate it because of that. Because you don't have to close my eyes. I'll ride oh. anything, but I have to close my eyes during half of them now. Yeah, I got you. I got you. But um, essentially, it boils down to this. I'm in favor of the argument of they don't make them like they used to because, okay, creativity was incentivized back then to maybe pave the way for safer bets later on. And I think, to an extent, we see a lot of rehashes these days. But I also do want to say, you know, there's been plenty of amazing films in the 21st century. You know, we've had great comedies. We've had excellent action movies. Superhero films are all, at least no matter how you feel about them, if you have fatigue, they're all pretty much at a baseline of a quality film these days. And I really appreciate that, you know, that sort of brought a lot of people together to enjoy um, that sort of genre. I'm kind of checked out a little bit of superhero movies, but I'm always down to see a good one. Like No Way Home, for example, was fantastic and that kind of restored my faith in marvel movies again and i think it's now the fifth or fourth most successful movie of all time it might have yeah, but, surpassed that but let's let's point this out you know there's a lot of a lot of commentary and a lot of excitement over the fact that no way no way home is that it mm-hmm. um is now the fifth or fourth biggest money-making film in history no kidding guess what films cost more now to see than they ever did um, so I know that fewer people are go- going to the theater, so that offsets it a little bit. But I mean, you know, I know that they do these things and they adjust them for inflation and that sort of thing. But, you know, it's exciting to see this film be that successful. But it's also, I don't know. I haven't seen it. I've heard it's great. 
I also have a little bit of Marvel fatigue and I've never been a big Spider-Man fan, but mm. I do think I'm watching this carefully on box office mojo and box office guru. Um, and I'm, I'm aware that it's, it's, it's a hot property, but it seems to me that it's a little distorted in that films cost so much more to see now than they did in 1997 when Titanic came out. Oh, absolutely. And um, I mean, you know, not every film is going to be on the level of No Way Home and in terms of anticipation. But this brings me to the last topic that I sort of want to discuss. And that's the quote unquote death of movie theaters. Now I understand Mm -hmm. people, they've been on the decline for a while and people probably thought COVID would kill movie theaters. And I think that's a little bit um, disingenuous to say. I don't think movie theaters are going anywhere. I just think that movies like No Way Home are going to be the only ones that really get butts and seats. You know what I'm talking about? The hundred percent. I agree with you. It's just like streaming services. It's changed the way we interact with media. I don't think people are going to go see um, a tiny, very niche film unless it's in an art house theater or like an Alamo draft house. I don't expect those to see profitable returns. I see uh, direct-to-video or shop-to-a-streaming-service to be the most profitable way that film gets distributed. And I think No Way Home, to, I mean, to however you might see it, is pretty much going to set the basis for how movie theaters are sort of experienced again. They have to be events. They have to be really big anticipated films. Uh, I don't I, I don't disagree at all. In fact, um, I mean, there are so many contributing factors there. Okay, first of all, you have the pandemic, which is the most obvious. And I would say to you this, that I'm really surprised that theaters have come back the way they have, because there was a period of time, especially during the lockdown, and yes, I'm using air quotes here, that, you know, I thought, well, theaters are going to close, no one's going to go back, because you get into a routine, mm-hmm. or you get out of a routine, right? And, you know, your mom, she loves to go to the movies. Last year, 2021, we saw two films in the theater, one in June, no, one in May and one in December. And um, one was good, one was fine. And, but my point is, is that when they make films increasingly, so when I look at what films are coming out, I'm impressed with the fact that, you know, I'll look at a film and I'll think, oh, that looks kind of interesting. But then it's coming to Paramount Plus or it's coming to HBO Max, or it's coming to Peacock. And I'm like, I think this is even better. Why would I bother to go to a theater? Yeah, I think they're trying to change that a little bit too. I know HBO Max is- uh, Yeah, exclusive. the HBO Max deal for next for this year is not as not what it was this past year. But, but there have been some other films like uh, Amazon has had a number of films that, you know, have been first run films that I think, why would I go to the theater? And the other thing too, I'll just say this, then there are some other films like The Eternals, mm-hmm. right? So probably one of the least successful Marvel properties, but still successful in its own right, 160 million stateside or whatever. That's on Disney Plus now. I am the kind of person who, you know, I wanted to go see every Star Wars movie when it came out the day before it started or the, you know, the evening show. And we did. And it was great. And I would do that again for Star Wars. But, you know, that film came out and I thought, okay, it's coming to, to uh, Disney Plus in, what was it, 90 days? So mm-hmm. it's here. I haven't watched it yet. But knowing that these films that are events are going to show up on a streaming platform within 60 to 90 days, I can wait. 
Maybe that's yeah. maybe that's my stage of life too, right? No, I maybe know, that's how I like to watch films. I know what you're saying. Um, I'm sort of in the opposite camp. It's just like if I know it's going to come to streaming in 60 to 90 days, I'm just going to give it a shot in the theater if I want to see it. But if it's concurrently in uh, on streaming and in the theater, like Matrix, I'm totally just going to watch it on HBO Max. Oh you know? yeah, absolutely. Um, I can but, imagine. I loved Dune. I thought Dune was fantastic. Mm-hmm. But I didn't love it enough to think, wow, this would be so great on the big screen. Honestly, I think I might have liked it even better if I had that immersiveness of the big screen because I was watching I would have too, who were pretty uninterested. I enjoyed it on my couch even more. Sorry. Okay, fair enough, fair enough. So um, yeah, I'm just going to close with, I'm at that age where if I want to go see a movie and a friend and I think a movie looks interesting, we're going to see it. Doesn't have to be a big budget feature. I'll see pretty much anything in a theater because I still love that experience and I'm not as much as somebody who just needs to stay home I think you have more of a reason to just say hey you know we have all these streaming services why not watch it on the couch and I think that's totally fair but I yeah. think I'm, at, I'm just sort of at the age where I'm willing to make that trek to the movie theater I'm willing to enjoy that experience because that's just the stage of life where I'm at right now and I'm sure one day I'll probably feel the same as you and I don't know where movie theaters will be by then so, uh, you, yeah, I, I, I would say the last two or three years have really changed. Now, don't get me wrong. Um, if a film comes out and I'm really excited about it and that's what it has to be, I have to be really excited about it. Then I'll go to the theater. Mm-hmm. Um, but, uh, it also has to not be available anytime soon for me in my living room so that I have more excitement about seeing it. So, and I think that's a totally fair, um, perspective to have. I'm just sort of at the point where if I learned about a movie a week ago and it has a really interesting concept and a friend and I decide, Hey, that's kind of interesting. Yeah. We'll totally go see it in the theater, but and then I'll uh, ask you how it was. Yeah, exactly. So, yeah. All right. So that's sort of uh, wraps up our idea of uh, how they don't make them like they used to anymore. A little argument on both sides, but obviously I think there's nuance here. And I think making blanket statements saying, movies were so much better back then, or, you know, movies aren't good now, or everything's a rehash. Okay, there's elements of truth to each statement. But I think you also have to realize that we are so far removed from all those classics, and they're classics, because they're so much older, because we've had so many years with them, we've had so much time to reflect and think about how they've influenced society, and how they've sort of influenced more movies and media. Of course, you're going to be able to look back with rose-tinted glasses, like you were saying, and have a clear picture of that. But it's all those movies in between, the ones that weren't that big or were smaller budget, that you kind of forget about over time. And I think since we're in the middle of knowing pretty much a lot of movies that are coming out, we don't truly realize the great that we're getting from this. And we might look back in 20 years and say, wow, that was way too much superhero movies. But I've seen plenty of excellent films in my past 10, 15 years in theaters that are absolutely worth watching. And I think we have more accessibility to it than ever. So my closing argument is, you know what? Movies are a miracle. It's a special thing that they can get made in this day and age. And I think it's a real privilege to be able to have the access that we do to them. So however you feel, past or present, just enjoy what you enjoy and try to find something that interests you. Movies have something for everybody. I want to close uh, before we move into uh, check it out. I want to ask you a question. Yeah. 
um, since we're both uh, admittedly big time Star Wars fans. Oh yeah. If one, if you could remake one of the Star Wars films, just one, mm-hmm. and it has to have been a film in the theater. Okay. Which film would you remake? Um, and I, and I don't mean changing the story. I just mean the original it's time for an update. The original films? The nine or the 10 oh, or the 11 with, with uh, Rogue One and Solo. Okay. I'm going to give you a selfish answer and then I'm going to give you a more realistic answer. Um, right. My selfish answer is Return of the Jedi because it's, I think it still holds up to this day, but it had so much imagine, like imagination in it. I'd love to see with modern filmmaking techniques, how that could have turned out um, like, you know, in 2022 um with my more realistic answer is i wish they could give the last jedi a do-over i had an idea in my mind of what it might be where it might go and honestly it underwhelmed me in every sort of way i mean i think that was truly what made me start doubting the star wars franchise because say what you want about the prequels i really enjoyed all of them i found there was enjoyment in each and every single one of them I felt like the sequel trilogy was set up so strong with The Force Awakens, uh, strong enough. You know, it, it obviously it was a lot of influence from, of course, A New Hope. But I really think they fumbled the bag with The Last Jedi, and that showed that they didn't have a clear plan for the whole trilogy. And then that made the last Skywalker. What, what was the last movie called? The Rise of Skywalker. Rise of Skywalker. I loved it. You loved it, which I, I, that's awesome since you're a, you know, 40 year fan of the franchise. But for me personally, I just, I think it just made that movie suffer even more and it just felt rushed. So I wish they could redo The Last Jedi. Um, but that's just my idea. What about you? Episode three, Revenge of the Sith. No question. Uh, I don't think the effects hold up and um, I would like to see it redone just for that very, uh, very reason interesting but i think it's a perfect movie I, it, oh it's a fantastic movie and the memes and the i mean you know we yeah. were watching last night and they were talking about you're oh well i'll res- i will hold off because that's what i want to talk about in our check it out so awesome so let's move right into there um okay. I, I just want to give a special shout out to um a friend and his band uh who sent me a new single they just released so um, I went to college uh, and made a friend named Jake Mahaney. He was in my fraternity and he is a very talented musician. And he's part of a band called Lexi Noise. And uh, they're sort of up and coming right now. And they released an EP uh, that was honestly very, very good that I listened to this summer. And he just sent me their new single and it's called Homewrecker. Now it is explicit. So if anybody wants to listen to it, bear that in mind. But at the same time, it's a really great rock track and it's shown a lot of growth even from last summer's EP up to now. I was legitimately impressed with it. And I think they're a bunch of really talented guys and I think they're going places. So listen to home wrecker on Spotify by Lexi noise. That's L E X I N O I S E. And it came out this year in 2022. Okay. Uh, my check it out is Cobra Kai season four on nice. Netflix. Uh, we finished it last night, and I have to tell you, by the way, that's Cobra Kai, C-O-B-R-A-K-A-I. Anyway, uh, Cobra Kai is um, a, uh, obviously it's a 
television series that started on YouTube TV and then Netflix was smart enough to snatch it up and it expands the Karate Kid universe. Now, you need to know that I have friends of my generation and of other generations who have no interest in Cobra Kai. So it's not just because your mom and I are of a certain age and we remember seeing the films in the theater, mm-hmm. although they were, they were quite good. This show is nothing but entertaining. Absolutely nothing about entertain, nothing but entertaining. Season four is far superior to season three. And I will just leave you with this. Remember when I was talking about Revenge of the Sith just a, a minute ago and all the quotable lines from it? Yeah. Last night in the season finale of Cobra Kai, they were talking about who has the high ground. And so, you know, uh, you know that's funny. Uh-huh. That's funny. Yep. You know, I still see, I still see high ground memes, like pretty much everywhere. Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, you know, if the sequels couldn't have been quality to everybody, at least they took a lot of great one-liners from it. I mean, sure good job. Always on the move. <laughs> yeah. Which is why I'm super excited about Obi-Wan's new miniseries coming out. I'm not sh- I think it's this year. Maybe it is definitely this year. Yeah. Yeah. I'm going to take a day off of work to watch that first episode multiple times because i cannot wait for you and mcgregor's return it's gonna be excellent and hayden christensen don't remind me oh my gosh i'm so excited i'm so excited um yeah but speaking of that we will share our thoughts on uh the finale of the book of boba fett in a few weeks so uh, do bear in mind that that is also coming as well. More Star Wars content. We're up for season episode four this week. Absolutely. So. Well, thanks so much for listening to another episode. Uh, we are almost at a year point. Uh, next week will be uh, 52 weeks. So we are finally meeting the standard of a true podcast, according to my good friend, Jacob. Um, but it's been awesome. It's been a great ride so far. And we're planning on continuing to do this for the foreseeable future, of course um you know we just love recording and it's been really nice to be able to sort of do this week by week without fail so i mean we have plenty more topics coming up and if you've been sticking with us since the beginning thank you so much um and we hope to get a little bit interaction from you on social media i will be marketing (laughs) more. i promise i promise i promise it's just you know and i will tease next week's episode we're going to talk about things on our bucket list we're taking a page from our friends over at the Flamingo Room, and we're talking about bucket list items, bucket list. so get ready. All right. That is news to me, but I it will prepare for that episode. All right. But until then, I'm Noah. And I'm Greg. And this is Easy Talk.